objective, constructive, creative. You're listening to the Solid Vox, the voice of intellectual adventure. And now let's cross to the Stuart Goldsmith show on the Solid Vox. What's on the show for today? Well, we've got uh, Dr. Bernstein's on today. And the topic for our discussion is uh, what is a proper moral social system? Gentlemen, before we get started, I need to uh, put in a word for our sponsor. Okay, got to pay some bills. <laughs> got something special to, stay, to say? Then send it in a bouquet. Send it today. Fresh, lovely, delightful flowers. Flowers are the perfect way to say thank you for your support or I'm thinking about you, or I love you, mum and dad, or I'm so glad to be with you, darling. You can select, purchase, and deliver your flowers online by going to iloveprotoss.com. you love shopping at the online mega store that says, we love capitalism. iloveprotoss.com. You're on the solid box and listening to the Stuart Goldsmith Show. Over to you, Stuart. Well, thank you, Protos. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, uh, in your book, uh, in fact, in the very early part of the book, you, you discuss this great disconnect and uh, the mind-body dichotomy. Would it be proper uh, to state that this conflict isn't only limited between the left and the right, but it explains a lot of the differences between the factions within the right? Uh, the religious right, you know, and the economic right. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think um, the great disconnect, the uh, the main point there is that um, there's the capitalism has this. Uh, if you study its history, um, honestly, it has this uh, glorious history of of having uh, brought freedom and prosperity to millions of people um, in Western Europe, North America, the Asian tigers who previously lived on, uh, under dictatorship and were economically destitute. And the disconnect is that it's completely misunderstood by most, uh, misevaluated by most of uh, the humanities intellectuals, the professors and the teachers and the writers and the journalists, etc., uh, most of whom are socialists. Uh, and so there's this vast disconnect uh, between the facts of capitalism's performance and, and the way it's evaluated. And the key to that is uh, um, the moral uh, theories, the, mor the moral theories that most modern intellectuals hold, which is basically altruism, the idea that we should sacrifice for others. And on that, on that moral code, you can't understand capitalism, much less appreciate it, because capitalism is based on a code of egoism of individuals' you know, inalienable right to their own happiness. So I think... Um, you're, I think you're right in that it uh, uh, that split uh, here between the altruism accepted by most intellectuals and politicians and the egoism that is part of capitalism's nature. Uh, it does, it's not just it's not just part of the um, it, that that split is not just uh, subscribed to by the left, but the, the religious conservatives they can't really appreciate capitalism either because of the their religious morality, which basically is selfless service to God first and, and the poor second. So they, they can't possibly understand, much less appreciate capitalism. Well, that's what I meant, you know, especially with the right. You know, there, there's two factions. They, they seem to complement each other, but, there, you know, there's a, like you were saying, there's a great disconnect here. You know, there the, the spiritual issues, you know, they, uh, their agenda is abortion, gay marriage, rights, and, you know, uh, prayer, school prayer. 
and they don't seem to have any real interest in economic issues. And then the other faction that, uh, you know, they argue for privatization, tax cuts, uh, they want to, you know, loosen environmental, you know, environmental regulations. Uh, they seem to, uh, you know, admire the compliments of America's business heroes, but uh, I don't know. They just seem, you know, everything is unrelated to morality and and what man requires to for his existence. You know, they I, they do accept the altruist premise. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we've got to overcome. You know, we need to present capitalism from a moral, secular premise. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're making a good point about the Republicans you know, and the, the conservatives, that there is that, that split there. You know, the, the religious conservatives stress morality, um, but it's an altruist morality, and consequently it's impractical, and it, and it it can't be used to support the only practical system, namely capitalism, whereas the economic conservatives are generally very pragmatic and they, they look at the results, but they're not, they're not concerned with moral codes, and, and so they leave themselves open to the attacks of the left, who are, you know, uh, altruists. So, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, capitalism needs to be presented in an integrated way. It, it is, it's the most, it's the only practical system, if what you if what you intend to practice is promoting uh, human freedom and prosperity on this earth is the only practical system and it's further <clears throat> most important it's the only practical system because it's the only moral system it's the only system that protects individual rights and is is uh, consonant with uh, uh, human survival requirements on this earth so uh, capitalism has to be presented in this integrated way uniting uh, theory and practice, uniting uh, the moral and the practical, uniting uh, mind and body here, and, and that, that's the only way we're going to win this struggle for freedom. I have to agree with you there. Uh, just to discuss a few of the criticisms that always seems to be launched against capitalism. Sure. Uh, one of the questions that uh, has always appeared odd to me is, you know, the, the, especially the left, that you know, capitalism is guilty of being responsible for slavery. But then again, you know, you, you see the contradiction. How does the left explain the existence of slavery in the third world and non-capitalist countries that, you know, have nothing to do with capitalism? Yeah, I don't, I, I can't answer for the for the left. My, generally, my um, take on, on contemporary leftists is that they're, uh, um, I, I mean, if I want to be insulting, I mean, like, I, I would say that to be a leftist today, to that, that is, by leftist, I mean somebody who supports socialism in any of its forms. And the fascist, yeah. Yeah, the fascist, yeah, the fascist are a form of socialism. Um, anybody who supports socialism in any form and opposes individual rights and capitalism, to be a leftist today, I think, is, 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 is often literally psych, psychosis. I mean, I think people like, um, Michael Moore, for example, or you know uh, Howard Dean, or or John Kerry, or people like that, or, or worse, the, the the intellectual backbone in universities, people like Chomsky, Professor Chomsky at MIT. Um, I think they're psychotic. I think they they're <clears throat> completely out of touch with with reality. Um, so I don't they're think they I don't think they have any, any answer. Was that? I say their brains, their batteries are not included. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, the intellectuals are, are intelligent. I mean, Chomsky, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's, he's super bright in, in, in terms of sheer brain power. But his thinking, the, the thinking methodology is so divorced from from reality. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, they, they call, the leftists come from an extreme altruism, altruist premise, you know, the idea that virtue and uh, human morality is reducible. Human morality means sacrificing for society, means sacrificing for other people. Um, and so all the enormous facts that you could present, that I did present in my book, showing the vast practical superiority of capitalism and raising living standards for millions of people, they will just evade. They'll deny it. They'll ignore it. They don't want to look at it because it cuts against their moral code. So they cling to the moral code the way the medievals clung to God or the way the Islamists cling to God. It's literally an act of faith. There's no evidence to support the claim that altruism benefits anybody. All the evidence is against it, but they... they uh, they, they don't want to face facts. Regarding slavery, I mean, it's, it, it, once, you, once you make clear that uh, uh, capitalism is the principle of individual rights, it becomes clear that, that uh, capitalism and slavery in any form are the exact opposite. And once you understand that, if you, and you look at the history and you see that uh, the rise of capitalism in the Western world was, was uh, synonymous with the rise of an abolitionist movement in Great Britain and France and the United States, you realize that capitalism and abolitionism are intellectual blood brothers. They're both based on the theory of, of inalienable rights of the individual to his, to his own life. Uh, so the idea, the idea that capitalism is responsible for slavery is beyond mistaken. It's just uh, it's, it's ludicrous. Well, most people don't seem to understand that slavery is still going on. Yeah, oh yeah, well, especially up, in Sudan and, and, and every Yemen. communist country. Right, yeah. And uh, just two decades ago, they had slavery in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's right. You know, look at the Sudan and, and you know... It's yeah, I know, you're absolutely right. So my students, I, I raised that to my students for years, and they look at me, and I thought slavery ended with the Civil War. Yeah, so, well, yeah, in the United States, but... Um, where where the principle of individual rights that the country was based on always uh, militated against slavery and led to an abolitionist movement, but in in Sudan and uh, in the communist countries, uh, you know, there is no principle of individual rights, and uh, slavery is widespread. The good news is, <clears throat> this Sudan is starting to get known. So my some of my students now in 2006 realize that there's tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of black slaves in Sudan. But it's interesting. The, the the Western press is still so pro-socialist that they don't get the word out about the communists. And it comes as news even today that communist China you know uses um, political prisons as slave labor. That Castro uses political prisons as slave labor. Never mind what goes on in North Korea. Uh, so my students are, uh, are still shocked by that. Well, just just to give you a for instance, uh, back a few years ago during the Vietnam crisis or the conflict, or the war, whatever you want to call it. I was in the Navy, and uh, I was stationed at what they called Yankee Station off the coast of Vietnam. And prior to going to Hong Kong for R&R, the fleet commander came out with a memo stating that uh, if any of us were caught in this communist shopping mall, or it's a big shopping center there in Hong Kong, that uh, we were subject to court-martial if we were even seen in it, let alone make any purchases there. And I find it almost ironic that probably, what, 60% of the produce or the products that we're getting in this country are from a communist China. But yet at the time I could be, a, you know, I could have been court-martialed and even possibly served some time in the brig. So, yeah. you know, it, it's hard to explain, you know, 
you know, just in a normal conversation or visiting with friends, you know, the, the contradictions that uh, you see every day. Yeah, and, that, that, that's true, and the the da- and, and the the danger to us that those contradictions lead to the idea here that you know, on the one hand, some people recognize the the horrendous evils of communism, you know, the denial of individual rights, consequently the meaninglessness of human life, and the the state can slaughter millions and congratulate itself on on their virtue because they've slaughtered you know so-called class enemies. Some people recognize that in the country, and yet, you know, we trade. <clears throat> with China, like you said, we trade. Uh, China still has favored trade status, right? And right, uh, right. and yet, right. and yet that yet that militaristic regime, uh, the, uh, the communist regime in Beijing, is uh, uh, going through massive military buildup, and so they they have no danger from anybody on that on that continent that they can't already crush, namely North Korea. It's clearly directed against Taiwan, which means it's directed against the United States, who's uh, morally bound to defend Taiwan. So we're, we're, we're building up our enemies again, uh, just like we did Japan prior to World War II. And uh, the Islamists, for that matter, too. Excuse me for interrupting you. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Getting back to the ethics of altruism. Uh, you know, the religious right, they base theirs on the, on, on God and the command, you know, God's commandments. And, you know, the left, they claim that they're secular, that they, you know, but they're both religious in the sense that they advocate altruism. You know, the, the right. left worship the state, and the right, you know, they worship the supernatural. That's right. And, and until, I, I guess my question is, how, how do we convince the young, well, about anyone, that adheres to this code of ethics, that it's wrong, it's morally wrong, it's, it's, it's destroying this country, it's actually it's destroying the world. What would be an antidote? I, well, fortunately, the antidote exists. It's called Atlas Shrugged, um, Ayn Rand's great novel. But um, it, it, that, that is the, the battle for human life on this earth, so this is not going to be won anytime soon. But in, in, in principle, and in the long run, I think we could win this battle. And just as one uh, minor example of that, a few weeks ago I, de- I debated one of my colleagues in the philosophy department at Marist College in, in upstate New York on exactly this issue, egoism versus altruism. And uh, the students came in, you know, mostly. It used to be a Catholic school. Most of the kids who go there were raised in Catholic families. And, uh, you know, the, um, have a, the church has a strong influence in their life. It's pretty clear. So most of them came in uh, intellectually agreeing with my opponent. But I've, my case based on, uh, on Ayn Rand's principles, objectivism, was so much stronger that a number of the students, including people who were basically socialists in their politics, came up to me after the debate and said, you know, wow, you know, I never thought of it that way. I never, you know, thought of those arguments. You know, you won the debate. Um, so I think there's, there's certainly hope. And I think uh, the main reason why there's hope is because of Ayn Rand. And I hope many of your listeners have read Ayn Rand's books. If not, then, you know, they, I think I, I strongly recommend them to, read her great novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, because I think Ayn Rand makes an unanswerable case for egoism and for the for the evils of altruism. You know, that, to put it simply, the human life depends upon uh, um, going after and uh, creating, working for, earning the, the, the things that our lives require. You know, you know the, the, everything the human life needs has to be built, right? Houses have to be built, 
food has to be grown, uh, medicines have to be researched and developed, and that human life depends upon creating the values that, that our, our lives depend on. And sacrificing or giving up the things our, our lives depend on is, uh, we can't live that way. All we, all we could do is die. And Ayn Rand's revolutionized our understanding of moral issues. So I hope, I hope your listeners who haven't read her go out and read The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. But that is, there's the cue. I think if, there was, if, if Ayn Rand hadn't achieved what she did in literature and philosophy, then I, I, then I would be pessimistic. I think there'd be no hope at this point. I think we'd be going into a second dark age. Um, as it is, I think that there, there is hope, and I think we can win the battle. I think we will win the battle. It takes a long time to win the battle, perhaps centuries, but we will win the battle. You're okay. listening to the Stuart uh, Goldsmith Show on the Solid Vox. Uh, let's have a brief uh, message from our sponsor. Capitalism is about freedom and creativity. And today on the show, Stuart Goldsmith, uh, talking with Dr. Andrew Bernstein, is discussing, uh, discussing basically that. And since the beginning of time, since the first man ignited the first spark of human imagination, man has dreamt of flying. Has there ever been a fairy tale, a myth, or a religion in which flight did not feature? There was a time when only gods and demigods could fly, leaping up from the earth, touching the sky. But for thousands of years, genius after genius not only dreamt of flying, but worked to make it a reality. And thanks to the freedom and creativity of capitalism, today we can fly. We have airports in every major city and jets that can take us around the globe. We can travel, travel the world, travel for business, travel to meet up with friends and family, travel to a science convention. We can travel just for the sheer marvelous pleasure of exploring new worlds. If you're ready for that adventure, then go to iloveprodos.com and check out our marvelous bargains and our services on international travel. We have a search engine online that will let you uh, plug in the city you're in and the city you want to get to and bring up a whole range of different flight alternatives. The best bargains in the world for international travel go to iloveprodos.com the online mega store that that loves to say we love capitalism you're listening to the Stuart Goldsmith show on the Solid Vox network back to you Stuart thank you Protoss uh, before we continue though since it was discussed earlier about Ayn Rand and her novels I'd like to recommend that uh, if anyone that wants to know more or find out more about Ayn Rand then go to the Ayn Rand organization uh, the internet address is A-Y-N-R-A-N-D dot org. Uh, in fact, uh, from, from being a member of, of the Ayn Rand, or not a member, but a supporter, I, I see where you do a lot of lectures and write a lot of op-eds for the Ayn Rand Institute. Right. I, I would imagine that's quite rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Working for uh, for the Ayn Rand Institute enables me to get out, for example, and speak to college audiences, um, you know, to, to young minds who are, in, who are interested in these kinds of issues, and you know, to to discuss, uh, you know, to give lectures on uh, topics that uh, are, are the most important in promoting human life on Earth. So, for example, I just gave a lecture a few weeks ago at the uh, University of California at Berkeley on global capitalism, the cure for world depression and poverty. Can you imagine speaking at Berkeley on that topic? I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. great. 
All the campuses on the west or the left coast, as they call it, I guess. Yeah, that would be quite a feat. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, there was, there was some of the students were hostile, and some of the questions in the Q&A were antagonistic. But some of the students were interested also and receptive. So here we, you know, AR, through ARI, uh, through the Ayn Rand Institute's auspices, uh, we're able to bring uh, these, you know, these pro-individual rights, pro-capitalist arguments even to a, a, a campus as leftist as Berkeley. And similarly, uh, you know, a lecture on uh, religion versus morality, where you, you had a little quote from the introduction to that uh, just before, uh, you know, on how generally people think uh, religion is the basis of morality, but the truth is that uh, morality is impossible on religious premises, and you need a rational, secular philosophy to give rise to a life-promoting morality. I've lectured on that topic at any number of uh, uh, of campuses, including very recently at the University of Michigan last month. Um, so, uh, yeah, the working, for, working for the Ayn Rand Institute is uh, very rewarding in, 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 me, in, in enabling me to get to spread the word you know, regarding these life-promoting ideas and, and major campuses. And, and I agree with you. I think everybody should go to ARI's website, which is AYNRAND.org, and they can get a lot of information on Ayn Rand, her, her, her novels, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, and, uh, uh, and her philosophy of objectivism, and the, and the activities that the Ayn Rand Institute does to promote those, uh, those books and ideas. Right. Well, one of, one of the outstanding programs that they sponsor is the essays with the high school students on the Fountainhead. Uh, right. In fact, my, my grandson is in the process of, you know, his schools have received the free books. And, and you know, he, he's naturally got his own private copy since his granddad is such an admirer of Ayn Rand's. But he's in the right. process now of writing an essay on the Fountainhead. So it's an outstanding program for young people. Yeah, and, oh, absolutely. But like I say, it, it uh, it's a way of reaching the student, you know, the the, the next generation, because it's a <laughs> it's it's absolutely essential that these young people learn how to think in principles, which which brings up another topic: uh, sure. the dismal educational system in this country. It, uh, it it's almost like they deliberately set out to destroy their capability of rational thought. Uh, like I say, I've got my grandson, and then my granddaughter is uh, is going to public school right now. And it, uh, some of the ideas they come home with is just, you know, I spend hours talking to them, you know, and trying to figure out where their teachers are coming from. It's it's almost like it's it's by design, you know, that kind of a loss for words. Uh, have you got any comments on on What's wrong with the system, or other than the fact that it's supported by tax dollars? And God, there's so many things wrong with the educational system, Stuart. I mean, I just give you the the high points or the or the well, low points. Right, right. Um, and, and, and the bad the bad news is many of the private schools are not much better than the government schools are. And I think we should start pointing out that these are government schools, and that public schools is, is too much is a euphemism. Um, but one critical point is under the influence of Dewey and the progressive educational movement uh, in the early 20th century, modern educators have for the most part abandoned the idea that an academic program is, uh, is, the, key, is the essence of, of a proper education, uh, that, that all young minds uh, require academic subjects. Um, 
So they've undermined, and by, by the academic program, I mean, you know, the idea that, that uh, every student should learn literature, history, mathematics, uh, the basics of, of, of science. Uh, and they've uh, gotten away from that uh, in, a, in a big way. For, first of all, um, this is any number of examples. They've, you know, the modern educators have, have stressed uh, vocational training in the schools in many cases as, as opposed to academic training. They've undermined the reading program by introducing the look-say and then later dressed, up, dressed it up as a whole language approach and pushed phonics off the scene. As, as, as an uh, important example of that, uh, I, I'm teaching a philosophical themes in literature class uh, at Marist College right now. It's juniors and seniors. They're 21 and 22 years old. Some of these kids are philosophy majors. Some are English majors. These are, these are the best students in the school, and it's not a bad school. Well, in my literature class, when I had them read out loud, these kids can't read. I, even I was stunned. They stumble over words. When they come to a word they've never seen before, they stop. They don't, they, they don't try to sound it out, which is the, the indication that they haven't been trained by phonics. Um, and, and so the, the, the abandonment of phonics in, in much of the American educational system has, has been very predictably a disaster. Um, uh, they've sabotaged math with you know the new math. What do they what do they, what, what do they call it? Uh, constructivist math, uh, where where they teach the kids you know uh, they teach the kids basically to guess uh, at, at a lot of the answers. They basically stopped teaching history a long time ago. They they called the social studies, and my yeah. students know little or nothing about history. I, I mean little or nothing uh, of history. So the 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 the, the key to revolutionizing our educational system is, is to understand that uh, what we're educating here is the mind. You know, that the mind, as Ayn Rand's point out, points out, the mind is man's tool of survival. The mind has to be educated. That's the purpose of an educational system. Vocational training or anything else that a kid's interested in, they could do at home or do in their spare time or do as a, as a sideline. But the, that education has to stress the, the, the mind, and that means the academic curriculum of math, history, literature, science. And that's... Uh, uh, that's the main problem with the educational system. There's about a dozen others I could stipulate, but that's the main one. Well, like I say, it's it's it's, it's awful. I mean, that's probably the nicest thing I can say about it. Yeah, today today it's not even that every. every there have been any number of educational fads over the past century in American education. Uh, but they all have, they're, they're very different, but what they all have in common is a you know, hostility towards training the mind and a hostility towards the academic program. Today, a lot of it is politically correct indoctrination. You know, it's whether it's, you know, a, a sensitivity raising, you know, uh, uh, you know, and learning uh, to be to be uh, include all different kinds of ethnic groups, or whether it's environmentalist propaganda, or whether it's feminist propaganda, or whether it's socialist, anti-capitalist propaganda. Mostly, what the students get today is indoctrination uh, rather than training in the in the academic program. Yeah, uh, well, I was, uh, the intellectual heir of Ayn Rand, uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, has got some ex excellent uh, presentations on public education and how you can correct it or, or at least, you know, work with your own children. Uh, Lisa Van Dam says her academy, and, and they've right. gone back to the, uh, the classical or the traditional system of education. You know, everything right, and a lot of people, you know, notice in the past 20 years, the homeschooling movement has really grown in this country as, as a response to the horrors of the, 
of the government schools, uh, you know, people's recognition that the government schools are not teaching, and uh, worse, at best, they're not teaching, and at worst case, they're indoctrinating the the kids with all kinds of leftist propaganda. Um, and so you see people start to educate their children at home, and, and of course, predictably, those children tend to score higher on standardized tests than the kids in the in the government schools for the important reason that parents, even though most of them are not professional teachers, uh, recognize that, uh, at least to some degree, that the students need to learn to read and write, that the students need to learn mathematics, and in fact, they're training their children in the academic curriculum uh, much more than the government schools are. So it's, it's, it's a healthy sign to see uh, the growth of the homeschooling movement in this country. It's very individualistic, people taking back control of their own lives from the, and, the, and the education of their children from the power of the state. Well, one of the things I found most most interesting with your book, The Capitalist Manifesto, is uh, you filled in the gap between the practical for capitalism and the moral. And uh, one of, other you know other than your introductory and, and like we were just talking about the, the great dis- disconnect, I found it interesting when you kind of put things into perspective about the so-called gilded age. You call it the inventive period. Mm-hmm. And I found it really interesting that uh, you know you hear a lot of talks today about the robber barons, and uh, you know it's <clears throat> the rugged individualist, you know this cynical egoism. And I found it truly interesting that uh, you know you kind of gave a history of of uh, the period between the Civil War and now, as far as uh, the heroes that. Uh, have gotten us where we're at as far as an uh, industrial revolution. Yeah, I think um, the, the uh, late 19th century period in American history, if anybody who, one, loves heroism, and two, uh, loves human life on Earth and wants to see human beings advance and make, and make progress and prosper, the uh, late 19th century in America is one of the brightest uh, spots in the history of mankind. has um, com- been completely misunderstood by uh, by American historians um, who characteristically refer to it as the Gilded Age, as if you know corruption and graft and bribery and uh, you know were the, were, the, were the essence of the year. But in fact, uh, you know corruption exists anywhere, everywhere, probably including late 19th century America. But the dominant essence of that period was the enormous advances in in, in applied science and technology and the, and the full fruition of the industrial revolutions. I mean. You you have Edison and the electric lighting system and Bell and the telephone and the Wright brothers in aviation and Eastman revolutionizes photography with the invention of the Kodak camera and you know you have the first construction of skyscrapers in Chicago in the 1870s and 1880s by people like William LeBaron Jenny and Louis Sullivan the uh, uh, you know the German immigrant John Roebling perfects the suspension bridge and builds his masterpiece the Brooklyn Bridge I can go on and on and on with the advances. Uh, made possible by the freedom of the American system. This is the heyday of American capitalism. Uh, your great industrialist. Excuse me? That's the closest to laser fare that this country has ever came. Yes, exactly right. From from the end of the no, Civil War, I would, I would argue, yeah, from the end of the Civil War, uh, from the 13th Amendment ending slavery in this country in 1865 to early in the 20th century as the progressive movement uh, began to more and more impose uh, government restrictions on uh, the workings of a free market. That roughly 40-year window is 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 not only the closest uh, that there's ever been to laissez-faire uh, in America or anywhere else, 
in the world, but uh, it's the, more, it's the freest period of the freest country in human history. And it, if, if we read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and understand her point, you know, that the, the in two, uh, twofold, one, that the mind, not manual labor, is, is, the fund, is mankind's survival uh, instrument, and two, the mind requires political economic freedom uh, in order to function and to create and advance, uh, and that is suppressed under dictatorship and under statism. Um, if we understand that, then, we, then the prediction would be that the freest period of history, by unleashing the greatest minds that exist in any society, would lead to the greatest forward motion in history. And, you know, if late, late 19th century America was like a laboratory, it's like a test case, because that's exactly what happened. Ayn Rand's prediction was, you know, here is, is exactly fulfilled by, by real life. And it's, it shows us, uh, it gets enormously inspirational. It shows us what's possible. You know, anywhere on Earth, the, the Asian tigers, in effect, replicated that success a hundred years later in the late 20th century when Hong Kong and Japan uh, became very free in the post-World War II era, liberating the great minds, best minds in those societies. And you saw the, the Chinese in Hong Kong and the Japanese in, in Japan, you saw them just shoot up. And there's no reason at all that uh, that, that third world countries can't do the, can't do the same thing. What they need is... One, basically an Aristotelian or Enlightenment philosophy glorifying the mind uh, and, and a, a rational, secular society and, uh, and, and, and political economic freedom. And then two, uh, you, will see that kind of, you will see that kind of growth uh, in these third world countries. I mean, I mean what, what Hong Kong grew up from, from you know, 1950 as a destitute third world country to before the end of the century, one of the wealthiest places in the history of the world, is a showcase uh, example for for uh, in any third world country that uh, that wants to uh, move from the third world to the first. Yeah, Hong Kong is definitely unique. I mean, you know, it's uh, the, there's very very little government interference. Uh, you know, it uh, just shows you know, and maybe that's one of the things that has always disturbed me is the fact that capitalism has never really had a moral philosophy. Uh, it's always premised on, like we were talking earlier, the ethics of altruism or state intervention, and, which you know kind of leads us into that next question that I was going to ask. Is gentlemen, uh, I just need to interject. Uh, all this discussion about capitalism has got me all revved up, and I think it's time to do some capitalism, some practical capitalism, and tell you about some of the uh, merchandise we've got available at iloveprodust.com. Great interview, Stuart, Andy, uh, Dr. Andrew Bernstein. Marvelous points. Very exciting stuff here. But um, I'd like to bring you a message from our sponsor. And by the way, you're listening to the Stuart Goldsmith Show on the Solid Vox Network. You can find the uh, Stuart Goldsmith Show at stuartgoldsmith.solidvox.com. You can plug it into your iPod. Podcasting every day, bringing you the great intellectual adventure online daily. Become a walking, talking billboard for global freedom, creative thinking and prosperity. You can now purchase your high quality Celebrate Capitalism t-shirt online now by visiting iloveprodos.com. On the front of your Celebrate Capitalism t-shirt it reads, For the love of freedom and the glory of human creativity, Celebrate Capitalism. On the back of your Celebrate Capitalism t-shirt it reads, I own my life 
and lists seven great thinkers. You'll be walking around, and on your back there'll be these seven great thinkers displayed to the world. Aristotle, Ayn Rand, John Locke, Adam Smith, Thomas Jefferson, Frederick Bastiat, and Ludwig von Mises. And what a great gift idea that is. Get one for yourself and get a few more to send to your friends and colleagues as gifts. Spread the world. Spread the word. Join the worldwide campaign today. Promote freedom and creative thinking. Your Celebrate Capitalism t-shirt and other merchandise is available online right now at iloveprotoss.com. And we cross back to the Stuart Goldsmith Show on the Solid Vox Network. Thank you, Protoss. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, one of the questions that's always been uh, critical of capitalism, and you, you're hearing it really a lot on the news media lately, is that the, the old adage that capitalism is, uh, makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. Uh, I'd like some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a... That's a um, Particularly ridiculous belief on the on the part of the left or you know the anti-capitalists um, that uh, I mean historically let's take the practical point first um, historically what you what you've seen is the enormous rise in living standards in the capitalist countries if you look at the history of the con- of these countries prior to the capitalist revolution for instance Britain uh, <clears throat> in the 18th century. Um, the, the Britain's North American colonies at the time of the American Revolution, which was basically a wilderness, um, the, uh, uh, the the Asian, the aforementioned Asian tigers, you will find them in general enormously poorer prior to the the capitalist revolution, and with with the the, the development of, of the principle of individual rights, limited government, uh, and, a, and a consequent industrial rev- technological and industrial revolution in those countries, you've seen living standards uh, shoot up uh, enormously. So the uh, capitalism is the system of, for, and, and, and by the poor. That, that is what I should say. Capitalism is the only system for the poor. It's the only system that enables the poor to rise and have the greatest, by far greatest, uh, uh, upward economic mobility. It's not an accident that the capitalist countries have the most widespread middle class, and the non-capitalist countries, you know, uh, not even close. And I think that the moral point, of course, is that it's, it's capitalism protects the rights of every individual, regardless of economic class. And so uh, it gives the it, 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 people that have the right to their own life, which means they have the right to use their own mind. It means they have the, they have the right to pursue their own uh, success and happiness. It means they have the, the right to own their own property, the right to own a farm, for example, or a home, or start a business, or re- retain their earnings, uh, send their children to school, etc., etc. So uh, uh, by, it's by protecting the right, that's the moral point here, uh, by protecting the rights of each and every individual, this is why it enables, it gives the opportunity to each and every individual to rise. So, the, the mo- in effect, the moral is the practical. So, the idea that capitalism is, is a system harmful to the poor is uh, is an idea that you could trace back at least as far as Marx and Engels uh, to thinkers whose let's put it this way whose ideas have been thoroughly discredited. Uh, they could read my book uh, on that. I mean, I mean. The, the, the Marx's point that the, the workers are exploited in a, in a capitalist system is false 
in, in every possible way. Uh, but the key point here, of course, is that the, the worker or any poor individual, any individual at all, uh, his, his, his rights are protected uh, by the principle of individual rights and by the uh, limited government of the capitalist system, giving him the opportunity to rise. And, for the, and that's the only system in, in history that does. Yeah, you know, like you were saying, though, historically, you, you take a look at the feudal system in pre-industrial England and, and you know, the British Isles, and, you know, you, you hear the comments that, you know, slave labor, and you stop to look at the alternative. You know, they were starving to death. The average age was, what, 22 to maybe 30 years old. You know, health conditions and, the, the, you know, the sanitary conditions, and, and especially in London, you know, they were terrible. And the only alternative is, you know, they were all cottage industries. You know, they were living hand to mouth. And yeah. yeah. Through the yeah, capitalist those. system, you know, they, they raised capital and they put in machinery. And, and you know, these young people had an opportunity not only to feed themselves, you know, and they discussed the fact that, uh, you know, wages, you know, slave wages. Well, you know, that's a contradiction. You don't pay, pay slaves in the first place. But what was their alternatives? You know, these right. people well, survive. Right, I mean... The, the, what the left always does is they ignore, first of all, leftists, educated people in general, I'm talking about people with PhDs, uh, educated people in general don't know the first thing about basic economics. Uh, and I think uh, Henry Hazlitt's little book, Economics in One Lesson, would be a, a great book. Yeah, it should be required reading in right. every high school and college in the country. Uh, uh, leftists in particular don't want to know anything about economics because it clashes with their 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 altruistic moral code, and consequently their support of socialism. Um, so they don't know the, they don't know the first thing, or they don't know economics one on one. But the key the key the, the key economic point here is the distinction between real wages and monetary wages. In, in a way, it's it's very secondary how much money I make. Uh, the real question is how much how much can I buy with the right. money I make? It's what economists call real wages. And real wages rose from the first days of the industrial revolution, as they would have to, because uh, industrialization turns out a vastly greater supply of consumer goods than the cottage industries ever could. And increasing supply relative to demand means lower prices, means people can buy more with the money they earn, which means real wages are rising. And that's how we know today, one, economic science would predict that, and two, the prediction has been corroborated. Economic, economic history has become a new field in the 20th century, and the uh, economic history, the research here, and the use of statistical analysis has shown us exactly what economic science predicts, that from the earliest days of the Industrial Revolution, real wages were rising for every class of British worker. That means everybody who wanted to live uh, was 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 um, able to live a better life in England from the first days of the Industrial Revolution. Marx and Engels are just dead wrong on their claim that prior to the Industrial Revolution, workers had had a better life. They most certainly did not. Not if not if not if by better life you're talking about uh, higher uh, higher uh, living standards and increasing life expectancies um, and more stuff. You know, more consumer goods available to the average family. More food, more coal to eat their home. You know, more iron and later steel to build uh, homes and trains and automobiles with, etc., etc. Uh, uh, that's for anybody who is, is concerned with the facts of history. That is not a matter of debate anymore. The, from the earliest days of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution, uh, the poorest members of society and, and, the, and the poorest workers were benefited enormously. Well, there always appears to be a contradiction with me as far as the socialists and their concern for humanity. 
you would think that that would be one of the first things they would, you know, adopt would be capitalism. The history, you know, is is, is just almost self-explanatory if, if they rationally look at it. You know, you're, that's exactly right. That's exactly. Our sanitation and our medical, you know, look look how long we live now. You're exactly right, Stuart, and that's a very good point, because uh, uh, the leftists, the socialists, do claim to love humanity. And if, if they were honest in loving humanity, then the history, you're absolutely right, the history of capitalism would be self-evident, self-explanatory. They would, they would be on their knees clamoring for more capitalism, because that's the system that promotes human life on Earth. So they're, they're disingenuous in claiming to be lovers of humanity. What they're really... What they're really in favor of, I don't think they love anything, but what they're really in favor of is altruism. What they, they cling right. to that, the moral code of, of, of dutiful self-sacrifice. Uh, they cling to it in the way that devoutly religious people cling to God. Uh, there's no evidence to support its existence or its, I mean, in, in this case, no evidence to support the claim that, it's, that it promotes human life. What it, all the evidence shows is that it promotes human suffering. Uh, and because of that, they, they oppose uh, the system of egoism, the system of individuals, they oppose capitalism. So, I mean, they're completely dishonest uh, on, on, on this point. Uh, I mean, yeah, but you're right, it'd be self-explanatory. Anybody who loves human life would, would, would support capitalism. Absolutely right. It's, it's as well, simple as that. One of the other concerns, you know, we, we've talked about pre-industrial England, and, and one of the biggest, I guess you'd call it a fear, is the environmental movement in this country. Right. Uh, you know, if it was followed to its consistent conclusion, we'd be back in the dark ages, literally. Uh, you know, they don't want us to use the force. And, and I, I'm in mining right now. Uh, I work for a coal company here in Wyoming. And, uh, you know, my way of looking at things is, you know, we need, we need to survive. And in order to survive, we need to produce. You know, and in order to produce, we, we you know we need to put our efforts out to to secure the the, the requirements of our needs. And uh, you know, if you listen to the or you read their literature, and it seems to have permeated the whole society. They're even indoctrinating our children in it in school. And I don't think most parents, you know, really understand. You know, they think, well, we're all for clean air. Well, you'd have to be an idiot not to be for clean air. But it goes beyond that. You know they 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 have such a a belief in the intrinsic value. Uh, you know that we're not even supposed to be on this planet. You know we're supposed to return it to the animals and the trees. And I I, I, I simply cannot understand how it is why people believe this without question. You know. Yeah, it's um, the environmentalist movement has become one of the gravest dangers to a freedom and prosperity uh, that exists. And it's no accident, of course, it's a manifestation of the political left. Uh, it's bad enough at the political level. It's simply uh, pushing for socialism through the back door. So you, you can't argue for socialism against capitalism effectively anymore. Uh, this is the new way of arguing for, for government control yeah. of industry and business. Um, we won't interrupt you. But yeah. it's, a, it's a new form of religion. Yeah. You know, yeah, they, yeah. They, I was getting to the deeper philosophical points, but right. even at the political level, uh, when Walter Williams, the American economist, refers to environmentalists uh, as watermelons, you know, green on the outside and red on the inside. Right. Uh, that's exactly right. And then um, you're right at the deeper level. 
the, the philosophical issues here. This is um, the most virulent form of altruism that's ever existed, or, or, or I should say more exactly, of a self-sacrifice code, uh, because at least the socialists or the collectivists think that the individual should sacrifice to society, which at least is other human beings. But the environmentalists think that human beings as such should sacrifice to the non-human, to the fish and the snails and the, the trees and the, and the swamps, uh, which are now called wetlands, you know, and, and stuff like that. And some of them are very explicit that they want, you know, a, a wild and teeming planet. I think it was Peter Singer at mm -hmm. uh, Princeton who called for, uh, openly called for, you know, for the, like an Ebola virus to wipe out large parts right. of the human right. race. Yeah. yeah, so... Uh, the, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is just a monstrous. This is not just anti-capitalist. Left is not just anti-capitalist anymore. Now they're openly and overtly anti-man. They're anti-human. Um, I mean, the mask has come has come off. The collectivists have always been anti-human life, but they they posture as socialists. They posture as supporters of the poor and the needy, you know, human beings. Now the posture is gone. Now they're just openly anti-human and you're right about the clean air and clean water part if any anybody uh is supporting clean air and clean water as any rational person would do the obvious way to do that is through advances in technology which requires uh your capitalism and industrialization as one example of how how dishonest the environmentalists are we know uh that the by far the safest and cleanest form of large-scale energy conversion is nuclear power. And that's exactly the form of power that the environmentalists will fight to the death. Uh, they're not going to allow any any type of... I can't remember the last time we built a nuclear plant in this country. It's got to be at least 25 years ago. Um, the, the, the environmentalist slogan has become, you know, we don't want safe nuclear power. We want no nuclear power. In the meantime, of course, the French of all people generates roughly two-thirds of their electricity through nuclear. The U.S. Navy has been using nuclear-powered uh, ships for 50 years, and uh, uh, you know, uh, and the American nuclear plants are as safe as, as could be. Three Mile Island is a, is a great example uh, of that. It's the greatest non-disaster in history, um, where the safety systems you know function uh, perfectly. Um, so. Uh, but that's exactly the, the, the cleanest form of, of energy uh, use is exactly what the environmentalists oppose. So, I mean, that, that, that speaks for itself. Well, like I say, you know, we're going to wind up living in dark ages, literally. You know, we're, in, in, a, in, a, in a broad sense, we're drowning in oil, you know, until the new technologies come along, and it doesn't mean that, you know, they're not working on it, but it should be private. You know, private enterprise should be out there doing the exploring, and they're being handicapped by the regulations and government interference. And that, oh, yeah. And that's one of the important things that, you know, I always try to explain to, to people that I talk to, is the difference between laissez-faire and, and uh, the mixed economy. You know, they, uh, we need to take a quick break here to pay some bills, Dr. Christine. <laughs> I'm looking to it. Hey, okay, that's my we'll cue. Right that's my cue. Actually, we're just about at the end of the show, gentlemen. How about that? Well, it's are you are you sad? sad? <laughs> that is very sad, that for is, us. That is that is very sad. But don't be sad because you know how you know one way you can cheer yourself up, Dr. Andrew Bernstein. How's that? Well, you can come shopping, shopping oh. online at iloveprotoss.com. What could be what could be a more marvelous experience? 
Um, flowers, if you want flowers, we've got them at iloveproducts.com. You want to promote ideals like the ones we've been talking about today on the show, the ideals of capitalism, of freedom and creativity, we've got merchandise that can make you a walking, talking billboard for freedom creative thinking and prosperity or if you want to travel the world for adventure for friendship for love for business to discover new worlds we've got travel services international travel services all that and lots more at i love have a browse we're building the, sh- the online shop bigger and better every single day. iloveproducts.com is the online mega store that loves to say we love capitalism. And uh, gentlemen, uh, I suppose we're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, uh, if you've got a couple more things, Stuart, that you'd like to include, please do. And um, you're listening to the Stuart Goldsmith Show on the Solid Vox Network. What do you reckon, gentlemen? Well, I want to I'm thank Dr. Bernstein for being with us. Wow. It was, what, it was a uh, true pleasure for me to meet him and to have him on the show. Yeah. And again, I'd like to recommend that uh, you, you can get it at Protos.com or any fine bookstore in the, here, here in the States. Uh, the Capitalist Manifesto. Uh, well, thank you. Go ahead. Thank now. you, Stuart. And I think uh, uh, Protos, what, you, Protos, you have a link to Amazon. What's the. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. If you just go to iloveprotos.com, you'll find uh, the Capitalist Manifesto available online there in our online bookstore. Uh, you'll uh, so you you can buy it online um, at our at iloveprost.com. I mean, what better place to go? And whenever you buy something on at iloveprost.com, uh, the money goes back to the Prost Institute and uh, our non-profit campaigns promoting capitalism and creative thinking around the world. I mean, geez, I, I'm well, thrilled about it. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you get on the show and give, thank you for giving me the opportunity to promote my book, The Capitalist Manifesto. I, uh, and uh, people go to my website too, which is AndrewBernstein.net. Yeah. So, I so thanks for recommend that, Doctor Bernstein. Uh, another you, organization Bert. that uh, I'd like to re- remind everyone or suggest it before Doctor Bernstein leaves is CapitalismDap.org. And uh, for, for you know, if you if you want to read more by Doctor Bernstein, you, you can reach him at, like he said. Uh, AndrewBernstein.net. Well, it's been an extreme pleasure for me, Doctor Bernstein. And, thank you, Stuart. Uh, thank you, Protoss. Hopefully, uh, you know, I'll be on, I'll be on your show again. Yeah, yeah. Right. You have an open invitation, sir. You've thank been, you. You've been listening to this. Have a great day, gentlemen. <laughs> you've been listening to the Stuart Goldsmith Show on the Solid Vox Network.